This is the one with clampy pincers. An ungrateful, interfering, aggravating pest. The Slayer of the Week. A chap who's from anywhere but America. Caesar's salad. A two-bearded dictator. <laughs> and the proverbial bad penny. They're called Deimos and the Resurrection of Mars. Here we go. Reviewing stuff for Rebels too. Because we love our Doctor Who. Cultish robots are no bore. Hosting prison, why not sure? The Lord Haven and like Paul. Orbis Phobos, pretty cool. Now and then and here and there. We'll follow Doc 8 everywhere. Who back when? Reviewing all of who there is. Who back when? Subscribe and rate on iTunes, please. Audiobook by audiobook. Even those that are gobbledygook. We'll review them all, you see. So join us on this odyssey. It's who back when? Who back when? Bing bong, shazam lama ding dong, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another audio episode of Who Back When, a Doctor Who podcast. Or Doc Past. <laughs> I'm Drew Back When, and that guy across the ether from me is... Uh, hello there, I'm Leon. And it's just the two of us, because that's how we do audios. And we're doing a double feature, a two audios, two. Yeah, but in one episode, A025, Deimos, and... The Resurrection of Mars. I say bingo, you say bongo. That's right. <laughs> we should have a radio show. This is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it's early days. High level? Um, Yay, mixed. May. Oh, mixed. Mixed, mixed, mixed. You? Yeah, you know what? Mixed for me as well. Yeah. There are certain things in this episode which detract again and again and again from the potential of the story. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Even tiny things. At one point, I have written in my notes, I'm going to be deducting 0.6 for the faux American accents alone. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that at least is repeated via the medium of different words. There are some <laughs> devices which, over the course of two hours, make it almost unlistenable in places if you know what you're listening for. And that's what we'll tell you now, Podcast Land. Oh, I cannot wait to go through this with you. How about we introduce Podcast Land to a bite-sized chunk of who before we go on? Scow. <laughs> that's exactly what I mean. <laughs> Time for us to synopsize, lobify and summarize, so take a view, and grab a brew, and listen to this overview, this free-for-all, we like to call a bite-sized chunk of who. Bite-sized chunk of who. Way back in Space Museum Audio Land, Lord Isdal of the proud Ice Warrior race won a bet with his fellow Ahistocrats that if he faced the Red Dawn, he'd lose more than his shirt, and Mars was evacuated. Centuries later, ghoulish space extinction voyeurs get to plod around the turtle boneyards, guided by Professor Boston Schooner, preeminent archaeologist and mistranslator extraordinaire of crucial ancient philosophies. Another great recession has put paid not only to humanity grand terraforming project for Mars, but also Schooner's plan to excavate all the ice warrior catacombs of Deimos. And before he has a chance to unearth something unearthly, a certain man of the cloth does the job for him. Are those real-life Salt of Mars ice warriors trudging around on Deimos when the web of time insists they don't belong? Why, yes! Fortunately, Doc and Tamsin turn up just in the nick of time to do some meddling of their own before the pros arrive. Be, Be scout over, you are welcome. Aren't you just? Close enough. <laughs> yeah. 
So, just to get the facts out of the way... Let's hear it. This was a two-part written by Jonathan Morris. Yes. Whose writing we last heard in The Cannibalists. And it was released in October and then November 2010. Do you recall what we gave The Cannibalists? About three each. (laughs) Okay. Either side of three, I think. Indeed, yes. I'm on the page now. Verified. I mean... The author is the only thing those stories have in common. And the Eighth Doctor, I suppose. And Lucy Miller, it turns out. (laughs) So I have really fond memories of The Cannibalists, and if you had not said either side of three and I hadn't looked it up, I would have said, oh yeah, he wrote a really good script there. Uh, But there wasn't much to it. There was a lot of bone crunching and shrieking. Yeah, you're right. It's the acting and the production value, perhaps more so than anything else. Anyway, yeah, sure. giving it all his welly into the mighty Titus! Oh, that's right, yes. Any other facts about this one? I've got a bunch of facts about Deimos, but we can get to that when we run dry later on. <laughs> that sounds good. So it sounded like you had a whole list of things about this episode, that, or th- these two episodes, these two stories that you found aggravating. Would you care to start with one of those, or would you rather dip into one of the positives about this? I don't mind starting off by besmirching your memory of this episode. Harold and Margaret okay. cannot be in a scene without Margaret calling Harold Harold and Harold calling Margaret Margaret. <laughs> and once you hear it, and it keeps happening every time they appear... Then you can't you, unhear it? Y- yeah, you just wish for their sudden death, which <laughs> we were given, so that's a plus. <laughs> but that was way too late. I-, I kept expecting them to die at multiple points in parts one, two, and three, and every time they survived, it was like, oh no, more of them. So I didn't pick up on that, and that's something that I, that's the kind of thing that I would normally pick up on and then nitpick in this review, but no, I didn't notice. Well, don't go back and listen. Take my word for uh, it. It's, I absolutely it's incredible how many times... Because they are the only two passengers on the shuttle, which shuttles away from Deimos and... Oh no, and then they're on a rocket. They're basically the only two extras who get a line. So there's no need to keep saying husband and wife, essentially. But they they can't stop themselves. Why was that not edited out or toned down? It was so jarring. Maybe they did a census. They asked two people, one, let's say, Drew and one, Leon, and 50% of them found this really annoying and the other 50% didn't notice. <laughs> well, I mean, Nicholas Briggs is like the big Finnish head honcho, right? Yeah, one of them, and certainly. He was, and he was on set. He was part of the cast. So maybe that's his thing. Maybe he just loves it. Maybe. He likes knowing who is acting at any particular time. Did you listen to the behind-the-scenes bits after the audiobooks? I did, and I disagreed with most of them. <laughs> Okay, we'll get to that as well. But it did seem as though those two, I can't remember the actors' names now, but it seemed as though those two had a blast on set. I think their names are Susan Brown and Nick Wilton. Fine. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, now I've mentioned their names, I may as well say Nick Wilton played Harold. He's been in previous Eighth Doctor Adventures. Oh, really? That we've been in Brave New Town. Oh, okay. And The Beast of Orlock. All right. Beast of Orlock, I remember not liking super much. Brave New Town, I remember finding really, really good, in fact. I don't remember his part in it at all, but I remember the story itself was quite interesting. Yeah. I don't think he's a leading man type, really. I looked down his IMDb list and he flits between telly shows, as so many of the Doctor Who universes cast do. And what sure, I found yeah. most notable on his IMDb page, actually, beyond any role he had, was his list of alternate names. Tony the Butler, Tony the Door-to-Door Salesman, <laughs> Tony Deal, and Tony Deal the Con Man. 
someone comes to your door, which is unlikely at the moment, I know, selling a silver dinner service that he claims fell off the back of a lorry and his name's Tony, just call the police. <laughs> Talk about being typecast as well. Yeah. Okay, I have a feeling that there is a wealth of <laughs> aggravation that we need to <laughs> we need to explore further in this review. Yeah, but I'm trying to spread it out a bit. Yeah, so let's zigzag a little bit and let's maybe... How about we talk about the companions and other parts of the cast? We have Tamsin again, and we also have the return of Lucy Miller. Yeah, it feels like she's never been away because... She can't be away more than an episode before Big Finish says, please, Sheridan, please come back. <laughs> I guess so. Then again, when we last had Lucy Miller just appear at the end of the Book of Kells, turning off her vocoder and we all, re- you know, we get that big reveal. Oh, holy moly, uh, Lucianus was Lucy. Hello, Lucy Miller. <laughs> Soundbite. <And> then uh, <laughs> that felt like th- that followed a-, a long pause. That was certainly very much unexpected. This time, Deimos ends with that cliffhanger of there's a text from Lucy. Miller. I wasn't really expecting it, to be honest, but enough time hasn't passed for that to have any real gravitas. Maybe not gravitas, but I think it was the best thing about the first part. Oh, oh, absolutely. I I did write, what a cliffhanger. And then I <laughs> yeah. promptly ran out of exclamation points, but it Regardless, so we have Lucy Miller, we They're have Townsend. That. They're going to fix the supply chain for exclamation points. I know there's been a shortage. <laughs> the... And self-raising exclamation points, especially. Oh, absolutely. You can't find them anywhere. I'd really like some of that, actually. The uh... <laughs> Did you also find that this time we actually have... Tamsin and Lucy as distinguishable characters. Well, yes, because they were pitted on either side of a philosophical debate, which helps. That's true. We have that, absolutely. I mean, I think at this point, it's pretty clear where Tamsin would stand had she been on our moon debating whether or not to detonate it, you know. But but aside from that philosophical stance or ethical stance, I feel like they were actually written differently this time. When Tamsin showed up in the beginning, we were saying like, well, I mean, she could be almost anyone. She could, she could very, this could very clearly just have been a Lucy script that was repurposed. And now I feel like those are very different characters. I think you may be overstating it slightly because okay. there are still big parallels with what they do. First of all, both of them end up dressing the Doctor in this serial Tamsin sort of wedges him into a spacesuit, and Lucy puts him in Ice Warrior armor. That's true. And both of them spend most of their time complaining and saying, what are you doing this for? Okay, yes, that is true. (laughs) And and also the way they subject his viewpoint to scrutiny is quite similar, insofar as they are both asking questions. And although they are reaching similar conclusions, they are using the same questions to get to those different places. Is it perhaps that they've, in that case, emphasized the uh, sophistication of Tamsin and the street smarts of Lucy? Possibly. I did notice that there was a lot of northern slang and interjections. Uh, Lucy says mush at one point, and Tamsin is all about her previous theatrical experience. True. But Lucy is also, she's bolshier, she's more arrogant, and she seems a little ballsier than Tamsin in this one. Oh, I see. Tamsin Tamsin seems almost sly at times, whereas Lucy 
didn't really know what to make of her when she previously appeared with the monk. I thought, oh, wait, has she sort of switched sides? Has something happened? I, I think we had a few theories of our own that we were bouncing off the wall, and clearly none of those were true. She was the exact same Lucy as before. It's just that she expected the monk to be like the Doctor. Yeah, I, I, as I remember it, you were two-thirds convinced that she'd turned, and I was like, dude, it's just a big misunderstanding. <laughs> But wouldn't that have been good, though? Uh, well, if they had justified it uh, adequately, then sure. I feel like that's exactly the kind of thing that you could have in an audio, in, in a big Finnish audio drama. You'd, you'd have, oh, the monks um, put some sort of microchip on the back of her head, and and uh, now he's controlling her because he needs all the knowledge from her travels with the doctor or whatever. But no, it's he just wants a companion. Yeah, I I did like all that stuff about why Tamsin eventually goes with the monk. I thought they did quite a good job of fleshing that out, and I wasn't actually sure which way she would go. I didn't know whether the doc would have both of them as companions, and then the monk just saunters back, and she goes with him, and and that seems equally plausible. I thought they trod that line and set up that balance quite well. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that was very well done. Something else that I was expecting that did not come to pass was I was expecting the two companions to be pitted against each other. I think the way that I phrased it in our last review was you have the long lost twins, the you know, the separated twins separated at birth that suddenly have to meet up or whatever. You don't get that kind of dilemma between the two in this one. Yeah, you they almost meet, do. they kind of disagree and then they part ways. Well yeah, they they were one ice warrior non intervention away from going at each other tooth and claw. I thought for a second that that was going to happen exactly, but then they had to join forces, and I guess they have to do one or the other for it to be dramatic. I, I suppose so. this was I suppose this was the better option, but it, it took a bit of fire out of the scene I was briefly anticipating. Yeah, ditto. Yeah, the disagreement amounted to, well, I think we should turn the temperature down. Well, I think we should turn it up. <laughs> <laughs> Sound bites. So... <laughs> <laughs> Big finish if you're listening. <laughs> and, you know, she's now at your price range. <laughs> what about the rest of the cast? Because, holy moly, there are a couple of people in this one that, that do a fantastic job. We already talked about the monk the last time we encountered the monk. But in particular, Professor Boston Schooner. Holy smokes. Oh, David Warner. Tell. It's David <laughs> Warner. And it's it, it, uh, uh, David Warner, who's an absolute legend. Before we press records, dearest podcast land, I was scouring media folders online looking for an image that I sneakily took of David Warner at a Comic-Con. Because the man is a bloody <laughs> legend. I looked him up and he's actually done a couple of Doctor Who things that I had no idea about. I mean, everyone knows David Warner. David Warner was on Twin Peaks. He was in The Omen. He was in a shit ton of things. He was in freaking Tron. He was Dillinger in Tron. Yeah, uh, even one of his co-stars here, Tracy Ann Oberman, was gushing about how she was walking on air just to be in the same atmosphere yeah. as David Warner as, as from as The Ch Omen. As Chancellor Gorkon. <laughs> How amazing is that? In the Mouth of Madness. Titanic? Yeah, okay. He was also in, the last time we encountered David Warner, I believe, I mentioned he was in that film Naked Souls with Pamela Anderson. I'll <laughs> say he did. Yeah, listen to our review of Cold War to hear us gush over his back catalogue some more. That's true. But interestingly, Cold War, also an Ice Warrior story. That's true. And coming after this one. Oh, right. Yes, 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 yes. The other thing that I found was Dreamland. 
I don't know if you ever saw that. I never saw that, and we never reviewed it. But it was a, a webisode, or sorry, a web series, an animated web series with I want to say Tennant's Doctor. Yeah, it was sort of David Tennant rendered in 3D, like Lara Croft was rendered in 3D in 1997, like really <laughs> spiky, apart oh. from a couple of obvious features. Yeah, that's how, like his hair, presumably. But th- Yes, exactly. All the love went into his hair and the rest was just some body. Then they ran out of pixels. But he was in that. Oh, the man is a, he's amazing. He can do no wrong. He sounds a bit like your Derek Jacobi. <laughs> He's not. I'm probably giving this slightly more <laughs> oomph than, than, than otherwise. But holy moly, it's David Warner. I was very pleasantly surprised. Mm. Well, to pick someone else who has also been in other Doctor Who and who I've already just mentioned, Tracy Ann Oberman. Yeah. She had the misfortune to play Yvonne in Army of Ghosts and Doomsday. If you don't remember Yvonne, she was latterly Cyber Yvonne, who shed a tear while doing her oh, duty no. for Queen and Country. Just like Theresa May would do 14 <laughs> years later on leaving office. <laughs> <laughs> Theresa May being a cyber makes a lot of sense. Makes perfect sense, yeah. <laughs> But Tracy Ann Oberman has also been Auntie Val in Friday Night Dinner, which is amazing. I love Friday Night Dinner. Wait, hang on. Who's Auntie Val? Auntie Val is the mum's best friend. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've just Googled it. Yeah, yeah, And every time she comes in, it's, hello, Auntie. Hello, boys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And, and also, I should also say, Tracy has also been in a bunch of Torchwood Big Finish audios, which we'll definitely review right around episode 4000. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> oh, and she was also in a short film called Cleaning Up, with Mark Gatiss starring as the perfect ego. Wait, I mean Hitman. No, wait, I was right the first time. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. I'm adding it? it to my well, watch list as we speak. Watch me type. <laughs> Yep, he definitely looks like he's typing podcast land. Okay, so I I also included in my cast section Mm -hmm. Jack Brown. Wait, sorry, who's Jack Brown? And plays the pilot and the doofus at the beginning saying, Oh, wow, what great costumes. You really are the best I've ever seen. (sighs) Yeah, so... (laughs) Life signs, no life signs. Wait, wait, there's one life sign. My second note from the top, the fan who wants a hologram taken is awful. Yep. That's him. Absolutely dreadful. So, same wait, guy. so he plays the pilot as well. Yep. The two characters you hate the most in this episode, same guy. Oh, yeah. He's Mr. Not American. Yeah. Right. So that guy, he appeared in the post-credits, behind-the-scenes interviews as well. And it turns out he's from Bristol. Yeah, go figure. I understood that he was this side of the pond. But he's also a friend of Paul McGann's son. Yes. And he met Paul McGann that way and then presumably got this gig. So this is... It's just like a clear case of it's sometimes it's just who you know. Yeah. And not only that, I think even more telling is the fact that Tracy Ann Oberman has like 18 big finish credits. David Warner, I think, had over 50. Jack Brown, never heard from again. Yeah, I'm not super surprised. But you know what? I'm glad that he got to do this because when he's older, he'll remember this moment fondly. He'll have, you know, everyone in his family probably got a CD. <laughs> yeah. Big Finish made some cash just off his Christmas shopping. So it's it's a good thing. I'm <laughs> I'm really happy. I'm really happy that this happened. Well, 
I mean, you can be happy for him, but... That's what I mean. Got, I'm happy for him. You've got to weigh up <laughs> one person's happiness against thousands of fans' distraught unhappiness. I mean, you've got to think about the greater good, Leon. You're absolutely right. I take back what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> the ends do not justify their means. Absolutely not. <laughs> the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, and so on and so forth. Back to Chancellor Gorkon. Anyway, um... <laughs> There's yeah. also a computer voice in Res- Resurrection of Mars. There's a female voice voicing a computer that I've also made a note is clearly not American. And all of these instances of just terrible voice work or terrible accent work, probably on par with my own incredibly poor American accent work, really drag down this experience for me. Yeah, it, this is something that has come up in Doctor Who almost as long as I've been reviewing it. I mean, I think back to Evolution of the Daleks. What, having just bad American accents? Yeah, because that was set in New York, wasn't it? And that was like my second and third episodes on the podcast. And ever since then, it's been coming up <laughs> again and again. And there are so many American accents. There are 330 million Americans and we pride ourselves in England on our regions being distinguishable, maybe only 20, 50 miles apart. But I'd say America has even more than that. They've got 50 frickin' states, for goodness sake. And so there are so many authentic American accents to choose from, and Doctor Who can't book one of them. <laughs> maybe they're just more expensive. I mean, maybe. You know, but here's what? another thing as well. There are plenty of non-American actors here readily available to, for example, Big Finish, who are better at doing an American accent. Yeah. Even if you and can't find a genuine American, I'm sure you can find someone. There must have been a casting call for this, right? There must have been some sort of audition process. At the very least, they have some sound bites of people doing like, okay, can you do this accent? Can you do an American accent? Can you do a Russian accent? Can you do this accent? Blah, blah. And then they pick someone who actually fits it. So why would they, I think why would you hire someone who can't do an American accent to play an American make that character Bristolian? Yeah. I think we were arguing pretty much along the same lines in the very last audio. We, no, that was the book of Kells. It was the one before it. Oh really? The Edgar Allan Poe one, Nevermore. Oh that right. Was it. Yeah. Two two audio episodes ago, we were going over this exact same territory because Big Finish <laughs> can't get someone to record over the internet from America, an honest-to-God American. <laughs> and you you were right. Every time the voice starts up, it's laughable, and it takes you right out of it, and it stops you immersing yourself in it. It's unfortunate, because overall, I think this two-parter has tons going for it. Actually, it's not a two-parter. It's a four-parter, because each one of these audiobooks is a two-parter. Yeah. This four-parter has... Tom's going for it. It has a lot of really charming moments. Well, ish. It has a lot of really exciting moments. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> and there are some good bits of sci-fi. There's there's a lot of really good acting in this, David Warner. But then unfortunately... <laughs> So it's it's a little unfortunate. In fact, I bet you the kid from Bristol who happens to be friends with Paul McGann's son is probably a better actor if allowed to do so in his own voice, you know, in his own accent. Oh, we heard that at the beginning. Oh, I suppose he couldn't be a space doofus from Bristol, maybe. Although, why then? You know what? You no, I take it back. From America. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, 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 maybe, I don't okay, think... Okay, maybe he's an exception. Maybe he wouldn't have been good. It's funny how... 
the actual nepotism, well, I, I guess he's not his grandson or anything, but the, as close to nepotism as you get of Paul McGann's son, we're completely fine with. But Paul McGann's son's friend, absolutely not. Nope. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're going to hear from Paul McGann's son, I think, in our next two reviews. Spoiler alert. <gasps> oh my, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yes, you're right. So we'll put him through the ring and see how good he is. See if the nepotism is actually justified. Okay, I'll cut this bit. As I record, he's much better. <laughs> you don't have to cut that bit. Maybe I won't cut that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stand by your guns. Stick to your principles, like the doctor in this episode. Oh, yes. All right. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? I thought it was very interesting. And it reminds me of something I thought long ago and then completely forgot. I don't mind that the doctor is different one week to the next. Like, I wouldn't mind his outlier performance in Kill the Moon where he just buggers off if it wasn't clouded by deception. Like, is he lying to Clara or not? And why is he doing it? We came away not knowing why. I feel like if it's motivated sufficiently, then to be dramatically interesting, sure, let the Doctor be different every once in a while. And and here, I think they did a better job of doing that. He was different, or or it was unusual to have him so lucidly expound exactly where he was coming from and why he was doing it. And I think it stood up. I think I agree with you. And I think that's neatly counterbalanced by uh, the duality of his current and former companions. Mm, I hadn't thought of it like that. I mean, there's also... Actually, hang on. Wait, maybe this is a tangent, but there's also the main problem of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. No, not so fast, buddy, because I couldn't even kill one person. Which you have then uh, balanced out by uh, Tamsin and... What's her face? Lucy. They represent the yin and the yang of that argument. But you also have the moment where Lucy herself becomes the subject, sorry, the, the object of that... Conundrum? Yes, exactly. Dilemma? He is prepared to sacrifice the, com- the, the, the totality of his plan and of their plan just to save this one individual who may very well die as a result of that. Yeah, and I also liked that he had that foremost in his mind as his reasoning but that didn't take away from the truth of what the monk was saying either because lucy was an innocent sure and he could focus on her innocent life being something he couldn't ignore but there were 600 innocents on the shuttle as well that's and true they were just as innocent but he chose not to dwell on their innocence or it wasn't as obvious to him that's even. very true and and he did end up reasoning away as ah well yes they died but that was ultimately the monk's problem and perhaps he is lying to himself but well he says point- I mean ultimately it's he he never would have been able to stop the ice warriors they would have killed them anyway yeah oh yeah so maybe maybe he knew they had to die and he just didn't want to say that and cause uproar and get mobbed or lynched yeah I I mean I. I think so. I, I took that to mean like, oh, well, there's there was absolutely no way of saving them. They were going to die regardless. So yeah, web let's, of time let's, dictates. Yeah, let's focus efforts in this direction instead. Mm. I liked how he Possibly. said that this is why he brings, I mean, almost as a counterpoint to his own logic, he says that he never travels alone, lie. He always travels <laughs> with a companion to remind him, to keep him in check, Lucy says, but to remind him that even a single life is worth saving, something to that effect. 
Oh, that was a lovely line, wasn't it? It was. I'm looking for it now, actually. He chose never to travel alone so he couldn't forget how precious a single life is. There you go. a paraphrase of that. Yes, exactly. I think that's lovely. I think it's quite telling that apart from the cast chat, we are dwelling much more on part two. Have we made it very clear that at least I think part one is entirely forgettable and part two is by far the more worthy of existing? (laughs) I find it very difficult to view these as two separate stories. A- according to the uh, the writer in the post credit sequence, he was tasked to write these two parts. It was a challenge, but in the end, they succeeded in creating two stories that function as standalone adventures, but that also work as a whole. They fit very right. neatly together. That's okay. absolutely not true. <laughs> absolutely not true. Part one ends with zero, just so, so many loose ends. Yeah, nothing's resolved at all. Nothing whatsoever. It ends on a cliffhanger. Nice. Everything tends to end on a cliffhanger. Except Doctor Who adventures. They don't tend to end on these massive cliffhangers at the end of a serial or at the end of one of these audiobooks. This is why at the end of the second part, they head off to have Christmas dinner. The The cliffhanger yeah. is the trailer for the next episode, but the, the story itself ends very neatly parceled, packaged, compartmentalized, and just tied up. Done. Yeah. And elsewhere in that post-episode promotional chat, yeah. they say about how the first part is basically an action sequence, and the second part is where they put all the ideas. And that, to me, rings entirely true. Yeah, that, that's true. That's true. The first one is it's maybe like two or three set pieces strung together. And I'm fine with that. You know what? I'm fine with that. I, I view that as just the action-packed first act of a three-act story, the two interesting acts of which are in the second half. Yeah. And it's better than having a completely dull actionless first act. Yeah. Or at least an act that is cerebrally as unnutritious while <laughs> not having something to get your adrenaline pumping. That's right. <laughs> okay, tell okay, you what. So, oh, sorry, no, go ahead. I, I'll tell you what. Okay. You wanted you wanted a positive yes, amidst please. these negatives. The music. I mean, this four-parter starts with a huge roll on a kettle drum. And then there's a musical flourish. And over the next two hours, apart from when it's called for it for some quiet suspense, you can tell they just booked the orchestra and said, guys, play all day. And there's so much soaring of violins and constantly just adding atmosphere to scenes. This is possibly the first audiobook I've reviewed where I found myself whistling themes from it. Oh, wow. Just afterwards. I'd be be hard-pressed to remember any right now, admittedly. But there were sort of little um, motifs reminiscent of, you know, Holst's Mars Suite, predictably, but other bits as well. And I just thought it was a real step up and they put some serious effort in. I'm very glad to hear you say that. I, I thought that the production value in general, music included, was par excellence with one exception. There was, Ooh, one, there was one bit of music in this two-parter, in the second part, in fact, that made me regurgitate. There, there was This is when the Doc and Lucy have their reunion union which to start with i found a little a little tame i i didn't i did not find their reunion particularly exciting but that was accompanied by a bit of music that felt like it had come from a just a like a royalty free music library like just off youtube it did not sound very nice 
But the rest of it, beautiful, gorgeous, possibly yeah, more so would, in the first part. Yes, I would probably say so, because what music can you put, really, to big, thinky subjects? Well, okay, maybe not music, actually, but in the second part, also in Resurrection of Mars, preceding Lucy's uh, flashback to the monk, there's mm. one bit of audio, just an audio effect that I thought was wonderful, absolutely wonderful, and I made a note to, oh, to stupidly did not make a note of the time timestamp, but I made a note to bear this in mind for a certain upcoming project of ours. Yeah, yeah. I, I also had the upcoming project in mind as I listened to this episode. Oh, yeah? There was, um, I was thinking of the necessity of getting around lines like, oh, what's that down here, over there? Oh, look, a certain doom. Well, that's really put a downer on my Friday, Harold. Because <laughs> <laughs> as we start to think about this, lines harmless, innocent, innocuous lines, such as we're on our own now, they start to sound to me like it is fortuitous that we have been left unaccompanied. Let us complot. <laughs> and it just beats you over the head with it. And I get that the format necessitates Occasionally you a certain have to amount that, yeah. of yeah, signaling and signposting, but I don't want it to be that clumsy. <laughs> no, that's true. So that's a good thing to, to make a note of. Every now and then, even big Finnish scripts or big Finnish productions will stumble a little bit in these in these cases. But there are also lots of little bits here that I thought were wonderfully well used. So, for mm -hmm. example, again, referring to the Who Back When audiobooks or audio dramas, the last one slash the first one, Operation Pandorica, had a narrator. Yeah. Our next one, our upcoming one, the one that Drew and I are currently working on, ha ha ha, Podcast Land, does not have a narrator. And it nor I like how you made that clear, as if the whole listenership hadn't figured it out by our ever so subtle clues and hints. Well, well fine. But what I was getting <laughs> at was that yeah. as these Doctor Who uh, audiobooks, the big Finnish audio audiobooks, don't have narrators either, because we are now focusing on doing something sans narrator, my mind was attuned to all these little excuses. How do they fit exposition without a narrator into a scene? And there are mm. lots of little scenes. I mean, the, the, the very first line, in fact, is one of those. This is maybe not the best example, but having an audio guide, as in writing that into the world, which nicely sets the scene, it gives you an impression of the context that these characters, these admittedly dreadful characters, this non <laughs> nonsense chap who wants his hologram taken, it provides you with context. It, it gives you much more of a, a feel for the setting, but it also provides you with all of the exposition that you need. Yeah. And it's a great yeah, excuse for for a narrator, effectively. Mm. Also little bits of, like, there's a, I think this is in the second one, and there's a moment where they're able to create tension in a scene just by having Lucy momentarily stumble and not find the light switch. And it's just so stupid, it's so silly, and it, it takes up only 15 seconds, but it really grounded that scene a little bit. It was a very nice introduction to it, and it already sets her up as this slightly clumsy, slightly chaotic, and also completely out of her depth character in that particular moment yeah these guys they do know what they're doing they, they, they really know do. all the tricks yeah like they can they say of course we can just buy 15 seconds of sudden tension here by having a character not know where they are and that isn't something that you'd necessarily think about when you're trying to get from a to b to c to d and make something sound professional actually putting little things in their way little bits of real life creep in which is hard to remember when you're sat away in front of a computer in a studio and perhaps you've been under lockdown for a month and you've forgotten what most of real life is like. 
Yeah, that's right. Or you so, have a well clapper done, to direct your lights. Yeah. <laughs> One thing we are going to do better than Big Finish, though, is if there are any Americans listening right now... Oh, my goodness. Perhaps we could even use your accents, and thereby they'd be genuine. Yeah, there, we may be compiling a list of potential cameo appearances. <laughs> so stay tuned, podcast man. Yeah, 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 do. Please do. <laughs> right, where do you want to go next? The monk? Definitely the monk. We get more monkery in this one than we did in the last one. Oh, yeah. I mean, he is the star of the second part, right? Absolutely. The monk, I, mean, I the know monk Lucy's a... come back as and everything, uh, and that's fine. But, ah, oh, the monk. Every line out of his mouth just fizzed and sparkled. <laughs> He's such a wonderful character. Yeah, he recarbonated this serial when it had gone completely flat. <laughs> I love it. I, I will not stop raving about Graham Garden's delivery. I mean, there is a note. Where did I put it? Oh, it's just the welcome mischief. Like I, I know Jonathan Morris, he, he said about his own stuff, he tends to try and write comedic stories or stories with a comedic zing to them. Yeah. And in part one, that just wasn't there. There was nothing funny at all. And then Graham Garden comes along and there's something about he, he catches himself in, in his delivery and he's he's a little bit self-aware and he's got all these verbal tics and tricks that he can draw on and he can just make any dialogue just fly. Yeah, more please. And to hear him saying at the end, well, I'm going to create my own monkish league of super evil and we're going to come back at the doctor tenfold oh my goodness i can't wait for that i have a feeling that this season is heading for one magnificent crescendo mm. which may yet justify jd and his 5.0 across the board uh, across yeah. the board yeah I'll tell you what, an, a, a testament to how good the monk is, is for a while, he had me going as well, right? When he was talking about zipping across time and space without without all the torturous sort of self-reflection and deliberation of the Doctor, just going anywhere he bloody likes, the most beautiful planet on the universe at, at the its acme of civilization and artistic achievement and shimmer wings and flowers changing color i mean that whole part was like yes okay we'll have a whole series of the monk please and the doctor can be moody and broody over there and we'll just go and have fun shall we were you not tempted were you not tempted oh i'm always tempted to go traveling with the monk are you kidding me how would you compare the monk to the master i mean that's very interesting that's a good question because i do love the master and the master's perhaps at, more explicitly evil. Yes, the master is explicitly evil. So while the master is full of flair and panache, as Missy and Jacoby and fleetingly other actors, I will add Delgado for you, even though I've never Thank seen you. him. Thank <laughs> you. The you, master. You want to see him do his thing, but ultimately get defeated. Of course, yeah. And, and I suppose I want the monk to get defeated, but I have to say I suppose, because I have to think about it, because it's so much fun seeing him do what he does. <laughs> I mean, I know that time and space will be fucked. Um, <laughs> but because he's not killing people directly, eh, <laughs> it's not a grey area. It's really not, when you think about it. But, ooh, I mean... I mean, he seems slightly more callous in this one than he has been in in previous on previous occasions. I think. Oh, I mean, the, really? I mean, the, the fact that he's he wants to do a good thing, quote unquote, and stop some space dictator by having him never be born. 
but in order to do that, he kills. Well, he yeah, he did kill that space dictator's parents. Oh, it was the snow that killed them. It's the avalanche. Uh, it's like well, if the monk fo- was to push someone village. off a roof, it would be the ground that killed them. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So he he causes an avalanche. He he sacrifices a whole village of people, but not just he sacrifices a whole village plus a whole generation of people. In order to get to one person. And that's maybe a little bit more callous than we've seen the monk be before. Mm. And they had to do that, didn't they? To put him as the polar opposite of the doctor. Someone yeah. who is okay with a bunch of death. I mean, even if we go to just the last one, the Book of Kells, what did he want? He wanted one book with some really funky space gizmos inside it. It was a circuit board or something in there, right? Yeah. And the death at the beginning, Brother Timothy, that was because of... Because of a uh, Vortisaur. Yeah, thank you. In the time vortex coming out at the same time. That wasn't part of his plan. Exactly. He he was murdering people. Yeah. He Mm. was taking advantage of a historical context. It's a get-rich-quick scheme for him. Do you think they've tried to do too much then? Do you think that it would be better if there were a different monk arc and this question was something posed putting the Doctor in opposition to the Master. Is this something that more naturally suits the Master's mode of thinking? Well, the Master wouldn't have cared about dispensing with a some space uh, some space dictator in that way. Yeah, the Master, the master would have gone there. No, he would have lasered the space dictator if he had to. Yeah, oh, true. And if there's nothing in it for the Master, he probably wouldn't even care. Yeah. But the monk, so the Monk is like an perfect monk... vessel for this question. Yeah, maybe they've evolved or devolved the monk a little bit in this one but the monk is going through the same kind of regeneration pattern and personality shift as the doctor right so i I think that's fine i think it's fine to have the monk be slightly more homicidal in this one than he's been in the past right well i mean the fact is that this is my first encounter with the monk and he was still pretty damn beguiling he's wonderful He's like diet master. Yeah. yeah he's like low-fat master. Exactly. The sort of master it's okay to ingest. Won't do too much damage to your heart. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, the monk. What a chap. Finally, all, all that work on nutrition journals means something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Who else do we have? have you, who else do we have? Oh, sorry. I just talked uh, over you there. Go for it. Ice warriors. We have ice warriors. Oh, yes. Now, another thing that I take exception to in the post... I wonder if it's going to be the exact same thing I took exception to in this case. Okay. The post flim flam is when they're saying Nicky Briggs. I mean, we love Nicky Briggs. And his voice work is non-pareil. Every Ice Warrior he does, he makes sound like a different Ice Warrior. A completely different character. No. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to sound like a racist, but they all sound the same to me. That's not what I think. Their motivation is always the same. Yeah. We want Mars and to kill the humans. And whether you put a bit more baritone into that makes cockle difference. Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> I could not tell them apart, really. But that's not the Ice Warrior related thing that I took exception to. There was another actor who also played Ice Warriors. I think Nick Wilton. Oh, right. Oh, right. Yeah. Wait, Nick Wilton, who was the uh, the elderly Harold. gentleman? Yeah, right. How could you not remember Harold's name? Margaret says it 200 times. Sorry, man. <laughs> I didn't notice. The, the, <laughs> what angered is a strong word. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, 
when he goes, yeah, so uh, what are these what are these creatures sound like? And then um, Nikki Briggs tells him exactly how what they sound like, and he's like, all right, cool, okay, so I, I guess I'm just gonna make this a noise, I'm gonna this a voice. Perfect, fine. And he goes, yeah, I mean, I have no idea what a nice warrior looks like. Okay, A, you're fired. Okay. <laughs> B, just Google it. Someone show this man a picture of an ice warrior. Why does he need to know what it looks like? It's an audio book. No, no. no. Oh. If anything, it's going to prove distracting. He's going to think, how can I make my voice sound turtly and green? Like I'm wearing... <laughs> A, a huge suit of armor. No, all these things are extraneous. The guy has turned up to do a job and he does a job. And that job is just hissing and wheezing. <laughs> As he says, and which completely it... undercuts everything they say about Nick Briggs' Ex- exactly, gonna, performance. Exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> just proving that literally any, any, any guy off the street can do this. <laughs> yeah. And instantly as well. They, they have the scene of Nick Briggs in, inducting him into the secret society of Ice Warrior voiceover <laughs> actors. And it's over in five seconds. <laughs> like this? Yes, perfect. Shit, wow. You're a natural. I like that, that we get to see the monks... Um, see. <laughs> the the <laughs> monks' TARDIS. And that it is a Punch and Judy booth. Yeah. Now, I like that as well. I like the fact that it was... Very similar to the TARDIS sound, but just different enough. Oh, the, and- the pulse inside the TARDIS, inside his TARDIS. I wonder if the, it's the same pulsating noise sound effect that we get in uh, either either the Time Meddler or Dalek's Master Plan. I can't remember, but whenever we get to see the inside of his TARDIS, right? I cool. wonder. Well, whenever they came up with it, it sounds great, and it and the dematerialization, rematerialization also sounds that much more sophisticated and locked down and without the handbrake. I was going to say it's a better model, and he knows not to turn on the handbrake. Yeah, and yeah, that was that was part of it as well. That that was part of the of the monk like come with me and everything is slightly better and slightly more carefree and you know what i think i just need that right now probably because <laughs> guess what future podcast land this is at the height of lockdown well well over a month at this point it is yeah well reportedly we passed the peak today the first peak the first sure. peak that's stop stop focusing on the negative buddy <laughs> <laughs> I'm focusing on the guy saying it, and that's what's making me cynical. Back to the monk's TARDIS. Sure. He seems to have so much more fun collecting all of his little trinkets across time. He has cake from Marie Antoinette. I missed that. That's great. Yeah, Marie Antoinette's cake, Caesar's own Caesar salad. (laughs) It's fantastic. And a DVD of Something's Got to Give. Yeah. He's a well-rounded, fully developed individual. He really is. Facets. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Okay. So you saying you thoroughly enjoyed that allows me to come back with a thing I hate. Oh, yes, please. Let's hear it. Ultimatums. Oh, okay. Oh, where are you so going with this? I only started making a proper note of this, I think halfway through part three. And I started marking it with the U every time it happens. The Ice Warriors say, return the doctor to us or Lucy will die. And then there's another one. Now release the doctor into our custody or the microwave emitter roasts everyone in the shuttle. And 
there's at one point there's an ultimatum and a counter ultimatum that Lucy doesn't even get to finish. She's like, you leave the doctor alone or, and then the ice warrior says, I have the doctor lower the temperature or he dies. <laughs> and Wow. Th- th- I did not listen come... to this quite so w- with quite the same granularity that you did. Yeah. They just come one after another uh, in, with increasing frequency the ice warrior says to the doctor, stop what you're doing or I shall kill you. And the doctor says, if you shoot, I'll press the button. And it, be- it becomes as fundamental as language. Everything someone says is an ultimatum of one kind or one degree of another. And I really think they got lost in trying to set up all these different things to make you think more about where would you draw the line in the greater good versus the value, yeah, the also, value of one human life. Absolutely. And there are also other ways of crafting dialogue to distinguish which character is threatening. There are also other yeah. ways to threaten someone than by stating an ultimatum. Yeah, you do this or I'll do that. As I say, there were nine in the last part and a half of four and i know that's not where they started oh that's and it just it just became increasingly ridiculous that's a little disappointing frankly yeah so you got one you got a nice good counter to that yeah sure so back to the monk (laughs) (laughs) not just the monk actually there are a few references to um either other classic who or just the kind of adventures that these uh, two time lords go on lucy and the monk went to see caligula which is of course the monk went to see caligula yeah loved him bonkers (laughs) but they also visited the censorites whom we encountered in a classic who serial called the censorites they weren't as big a laugh they were not no the censorites are a sort of distant cousin of the ood right and as i recall a really cool serial actually the censorites uh, william hartnell one Paul McGann's doctor recommends going to the glass deserts of Marinus. We have the keys of Marinus. Mm-hmm. It's quite nice. This whole thing takes place on, not the whole thing, but the first one certainly takes place on Deimos, which is a moon alongside another moon that we have already visited in Audio Who, namely Phobos. Yeah. Um... In fact, there's a reference to the, not theme park, but sort of hippie commune on Phobos in the beginning of Deimos. But, so are these stories completely separate then? They oh, just 100%, happen to... yeah. Right, okay. But this one references the other one. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I think that's cool. This is probably as good a time as any to roll out those Deimos facts I teased earlier. Wait, there's another classic one. Oh, okay. Sorry. When they, they talk about something to do with tea mats on the moon... This is in the very first one. Is that like transmats or another kind of T-mats? T-mats or transmats. They're the same thing. Okay. It's called the Seeds of Death. Oh, I always get Seeds of Death (laughs) and Seeds of Doom uh, mixed up. Hang on. I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. I think it's Seeds of Doom. I think it's Seeds of Death. Hang on. It's Seeds of Death. Well, you were the one who saw it. (laughs) That's fair. But in, in Seeds of Death, that's when they're sort of... They've established transmat technology, and on the moon is this transmat hub. So they just they transport food via T-mats to various parts in the world, like to starving countries, in briefcases. Right. <laughs> it's so dumb. It's so dumb. And the, um, the ice warriors obviously attack. That's great. Uh, obviously. It's perfect. It's fantastic. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. You were going to say something there. Deimos facts. Deimos facts. Let's hear some Deimos facts. Okay, once I learnt some of these Deimos facts, this 
serial became utterly unworkable in my mind. So I apologize in advance. All right. Deimos is less than 10 miles across in its largest dimension. Like it's, it's, it's an irregular potato-shaped spheroid. It's so small that its gravity won't form it into a sphere. So it's sort of like 10 miles by 9 miles by 7, or, or, or even smaller than that. So it's a bit much to talk about the moon's crust, as if there's any structural complexity to it. The, the outer layer, the regolith, it, which is just undifferentiated dust, is 100 meters deep by itself. When asteroids hit this moon, its gravitational pull is so weak that the dust just floats away into space. It doesn't come back again. It won't reattract its own dust. It's that small and unmassive. So to have this moon base and this shuttle chase and the Doctor pinging in and out of craters, he'd just fly off and land on Mars eventually, many years later, entirely emaciated as a skeleton. So, so that's tricky. And also Phobos is seven times more massive, so I can buy something being on Phobos, but, but not here. Are there any other moons? No, Mars only has two moons. Mars eventually will have zero moons because Phobos it's is... It's just going <laughs> to blow away in the wind like a... No, Deimos is. Oh, Deimos, Deimos is sorry, just blow away. <laughs> it's escaping Mars's like gravitational a, It's pull. just like a dandelion <laughs> floating around Mars right now. It really is. And on the other hand, Phobos is getting six feet closer to Mars every hundred years. So in 50 million years, it's going to crash into Mars. Deimos will have floated away on the solar breeze, and that'll be it. Mars won't have anything. Well, that's a pity. Thank you very much for sharing. Next week on Deimos Talk... Oh, shit, you know what? I I meant to say that whole segment in Patrick Moore's voice. Never mind. <laughs> never mind. <laughs> Another time. i got a question for you, and this oh, may need to be cut entirely. Okay. Have you been to any catacombs? Uh, yes. Oh, do tell. Uh, I've been to catacombs in Rome and in Paris. Oh, right. What are they like? <laughs> did, did this, Sorry, did oh, this, was there more to that? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, did this audio make you think in some way of those prior experiences or reflect those experiences? Not at all. Uh, no. no. But, but you know what? I, it's only now that I realize, oh, right, yeah, those were catacombs. It felt like they were in a cave. And it didn't right. really seem to make that much sense either because they're straying from the path. But how, like, is it just this wild cave system? Are, are people allowed in there? Are they just losing tourists on a daily basis? How does that work? They were allowed exactly where they were because the tour guide audio kicked back in and said, this is exactly where you are. And this is my nugget of information about this particular part of the system. Sure. So it's just that the Ice Warriors happened to be activated and appeared from behind At that point the security time, yeah. barrier or something, yeah. Well, regardless, I didn't really get a sense of this being... I mean, it didn't feel catacomby to me, aside from maybe being referenced in a line. Okay. I feel like that's a negative. Yeah, sorry. My recollection of catacombs was just... I, I was a kid when I visited both of those. I was a young teenager, and my recollection of that was just, this is totally badass. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> I can wholeheartedly recommend it. Okay. There's another character whom we have not talked about at all, but who is mentioned in incredibly superlative terms in the post credit sequence, and that oh. is Grenville slash Gregson. <laughs> right, yeah. So I think his name is Grenville. 
Yeah. And at Greg, Gregson Grenville. Wait, is that his actual name? Gregson Grenville? Yeah. Okay, fine. Gregson Grenville. He's described in the post credit sequence as the everyman. He is just this incredibly lovable... He's like the postman of this episode, except he's not a postman. He's... I don't know what he is. And Right. He's Patch Adams, but without the stethoscope. Did you feel for this character? This will come up in my rating. Zero. Yeah, I absolutely also felt nothing for this character. And when he died, it was just like, oh, wait, hang on. Did I just miss something? Was One of them was locked out. Oh, it was him. Okay, fine. Yeah, so let's, you know, life goes on. It did not matter at all to me. Yeah, I was also a bit distracted at that point by the weirdness with which they handled the death. Tamsin was making entirely correct points in saying we had way more than five seconds. We could have opened the doors. He could have fallen in, shut the doors again, and boom, he saved. And we could have avoided this whole discussion. And what the doctor and Temperance Finch, the security head, say in no way address that point or clear it up. They just muddy the waters. Well, doesn't the doctor say something like, uh, no, it, the, the doors actually take much longer to, to lock or something. There's a decompression timer or whatever. There's some wibbly-wobbly reason for why this would have taken too long. Oh, okay. If, if, if he did say that, then fine. But I missed it and I was listening out for it, but that doesn't mean it wasn't there. Sure. You know what? 30 seconds later, I knew what was going on in that scene. But as it was happening, I actually thought the doctor was being locked out. I thought this Mm. was a self-sacrifice scene where the doctor was going, no, you go ahead, closes the door. like, there's no time. There's no time. And then, you know, not even 30 seconds. 15 seconds later, I understand. Oh, right. Okay. So he sacrificed the guy whose name I don't even know. (laughs) Yeah. While we're talking about seconds, I actually counted how long that 60 second countdown took. Oh, how long was it? 80 seconds. <laughs> From 47.33 to 48.53. And at one point, the computer is saying 27 dot dot 26 dot dot. And it's like, be more obvious, please. So, yeah, that's that's another thing against part one. I'm there okay were, there with were many it. other countdowns as well. There were countdowns and count-ups in temperature. Five degrees, four degrees, minus ten degrees, minus oh, nine degrees. And, and th- those countdowns are especially infuriating because you don't to you. know... To you. No, 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 no. <laughs> because you don't know where the end is of those countdowns. You don't know what the optimum temperature for the Ice Warriors is or the point at which they cease to be able to function properly because they're too warm. They're just counting up and you've got to guess at which point it becomes relevant. Yeah, or someone else is going to step into the scene and interrupt this process. Yeah, and thereby make it entirely redundant. I didn't mind it. (laughs) (laughs) Countdowns, for me, are starting to turn into this thing that I really look forward to because I know that you really don't. And it, <laughs> there are so many things wrong with them. <laughs> I mean, there must be something to my point of view if after five years on this podcast, I'm still finding more things wrong with them. <laughs> it makes me so happy how frustrated you are. <laughs> okay. Ice warriors yep. are ancient reptilian humanoids. Mm, not reptilian hu- reptilian humanoids? Yeah. Okay, they yeah. They walk around. They're anthropomorphic. Sure. And uh, they're cold-blooded, yeah? Yeah. No, you're right. Remind you of anyone? The Silurians, you mean? 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Silurians are like geckos, and these dudes are like turtles. Yeah, and they were both ancient races that went to sleep centuries, millennia, millions of years ago, whatever. Yeah, very, very long time ago. On Earth, the other went to sleep on Mars. Yeah, because their respective planets had become uninhabitable. Correct. Why has there never been a tie in between these two races? Oh, I wonder if there is one. I looked on TARDIS Wikia, and the closest they've got to any encounters at all is they go head-to-head and fight in a comic, and there's a posited evolutionary link in an expanded edition of a novel. That is how... Wait, an expanded edition of a Doctor Who novel? That is what TARDIS Wikia says. That is how tenuous the links (laughs) between these two species, which share, circumstantially, every single characteristic going, are. So I just thought it might be something to think about. I agree with you. I think Ice Warriors don't have that much going for them, if I'm honest. Oh, really? They're just tanks. They're just organic Cybermen. Yeah, but they can be developed, can't they? Because Silurians used to basically be fish. No, nope. there nothing are two. Like... No, you're thinking of the Sea Devils. Oh, okay. Who are cousins of the Silurians. Oh, are they? <laughs> yeah. They lived alongside each other, one on land, one in water. But, okay. yeah, I mean, we do get at least one personable ice warrior in uh, one of the Peladon stories. I can't remember which one now. Mm-hmm. The second one. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to say the second one of the two Peladon stories. The ice warrior who's there is like, oh, wait, hang on. You're one of the good guys, weirdly. But aside from that, they're dreadfully annoying. I wouldn't want to see them on screen too often. They're just lumbering. They're, they're lumbering, hateful, terribly voiced. No offense, Nick Briggs. I mean, they're terribly... It's, <laughs> I think it would be quite annoying to have too many serials. Quite frankly, I, I, I find it annoying to have them in a serial because all they're going to do is hiss about how they want to kill everyone else. It's, it's, it, back. Yeah, it's the same reason that Daleks are great as foes, but you don't really want to have that much Dalek dialogue. Oh, but when RTD made them sarcastic and made them that's fine. A- How take often down does that the happen? Cybermen? How often does that happen? Well, I'm just saying the potential is there. If they're put in the hands of good writers, wink, wink, then <laughs> they can be developed and taken places that we haven't seen before. That is true. Okay, you know what? I'm fine with this happening at some point. I'm, as I said, I, I'm a little surprised that it hasn't happened already. But yeah, maybe, uh, hey, Chibnall, if you're listening to this, which I wholeheartedly hope that you you are, I really do hope that you listen to us. Maybe, <laughs> if you not, know, what are you doing? I mean, yeah. What else have you got going on? Yeah, there's a lockdown going on. We have 300 plus episodes. Maybe take this as a hint. Maybe try to write one of those. Prove all past Ice Warrior writers wrong. Yeah, I've got a prediction that I'm going to make for Series 13, by the way, mm-hmm. which is that we're going to have a big Sontaran story because Chibbers has already done Silurians badly in Hungry Earth Cold Blood. Yeah. And we haven't had any Sontarans since Strax, and we've only sort of had one two-parter way back in tenant times. So I think we're overdue a big Sontaran potato fest. Yeah, I think we're probably coming around to the next one. These things are cyclical. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's been far too long since we last had one. I think that's a yeah, that's a good good call. I'm not going to put up money against that. That's that's a solid <laughs> prediction. Yeah, especially if Chibnall's listens, because I mean, he he knows what we want to hear. Yeah, exactly. Oh no, there is one more thing. Um, Boston Schooner. We we've talked so much about David Warner. We forgot the character he played. How do you think he does? I mean, is he believable? He is he trite? Is he interesting? I liked Boston Schooner. 
I thought he was a great character. I thought he was wonderfully delivered by David Warner. But because he was being portrayed by David Warner, there was only one direction that character could go. Oh, really? There's a point where I've written, in Deimos, I've written, of course the professor is going to blast Grenville and drop the temperature. It would be a waste of David Warner otherwise. I see. So you you know up front, why would you cast this absolute legend in the in the role of uh, of Schooner unless he's actually going to pivot at a certain point and you know be taken in a different direction? I thought he was fine. I'm not going to wait for a spin-off. Uh, but <laughs> but I, I yeah, I thought he was fine. I don't really have that much to say about him to be honest. I was just well, I, enthralled by the presence of David Warner. I'll just say for a while it seemed fairly hackneyed. Like the crazy archaeologist spends his whole career studying these creatures and so when it comes to pitting their lives against humans, of course that's who he sides with. I feel like we've seen that before in Doctor Who. I've definitely read it in the story Glacial by Alistair Reynolds. There's a character there, Setterholm, who takes the side of worms acting in sort of an emergent intelligence system within a glacier. And I thought, oh, really? Is that all there is? But then he I think it's a pretty back. common trope in general. Yeah, but then he pivots back again later on when it turns out that, whoops, he completely misunderstood the race. And maybe that has also been done to death. But I thought David Warner carried it off fairly well. And be- better than just one or the other. We're in agreement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think overall we're in agreement. I also found another note where I, where I write, Harold is slow. Margaret only exists to express surprise. They are both two sides of Graham's personality split into a married couple. That is a biting analysis. <laughs> <laughs> Very nicely observed. Thanks. How about we rate this? Let's. And now it is time to rate this. Did we laugh or hate this? Bing bong, bing bong, hey, la 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 la. Ratings. First up, Deimos was a real letdown. We talked about a lot of the characters, Gregson, Finch, Harold, Margaret, even Tamsin in the first one. They just left me quite, hmm, what's the word? Cold. (laughs) It's a good thing everyone but Tamsin died. I don't know whether that's because of the heightened attachment I'm feeling during lockdown, so perhaps listening in different circumstances, I would feel differently. But hearing the production team gushing over how instantly lovable the various players of the week were struck me as naked propaganda. A character doesn't have to be a winsome moral paragon to be likable, but chuntering and squabbling as these did without a leavening of wit is not the way to my heart. Even if just before they die, you give us some little thing about, oh, weren't they nice really underneath all the shit? However, (laughs) the second hour, Resurrection of Mars, was far superior. The endless ultimatums, countdowns, and switches between two paragraph scenes were infuriating, but the punches were weightier, the acting more expressive, the stakes more interesting, the drama more real. The Monk and Lucy were both highlights sorely missing from the first hour i'd wager that this contrast even penetrates to the level of the writer enjoying writing for these characters more when graham garden said mars 2 halcyon nil oh yes it just it just made me think oh you've been holding back because you can't give these characters you don't care about the good lines. But then when the shuttle exploded at the end of part three, as Harold says, there, there, Margaret, dear, everything will be all right. You'll say, boom. That was really something that woke me up. 
the end of part three was great, but it's a sh- such a shame it took the story that long to start going somewhere beyond your standard reanimation Hungry Earth Cold Blood clone. If I were to rate Demos on its own, I'd say 1.9. Resurrection of Mars, 3.9, which gives us a 2.9. <gasps> wow. Okay. Oh, all right. Okay. <laughs> higher than you were expecting? Yeah, uh, higher than mine. It's interesting that you bring up the the writing of of, of the monk in particular, because uh, I've got a bullet point about that as well. But I'll start elsewhere. I'm, I'm going to start with the Doctor. The Doctor is most often great, and McGann is always a treat. But I think there's a reason we didn't actually discuss him all that much in this review. To the Doctor's detriment, the monk just outshines. And the Doctor yeah. just... He's a character that we know so incredibly well that you can just plonk him in a, ca- in a, in a scene and in a, in a plot, and he's just going to do the natural things. And I think in this one, he just does the natural steps. He takes the natural steps. Tamsin and Lucy, well, they're now more clearly two disparate characters in my mind, which I appreciate. Tamsin gets to limber up with ballet movements and drop references to weeks in Provence, while Lucy is charmingly but decidedly common. <laughs> I, I had originally written gutter wench but yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah i get it they were leaning into it this episode they really were good lines this is one from uh, tamsin good lines include i'm cast not a wardrobe assistant i thought that was really clever Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. lazy lucy typical lines include it was the professor with a spanner in the what's it fine yeah just feels like that's a lucy line annoyingly generic lines include and i would have gotten away with it too if it hadn't been for your meddling right that annoyed me i didn't like that one it took me out of it and it didn't feel like something that the the monk would say anyway the ice warriors they defy any need for further commentary in my opinion they simply were but they were well (laughs) they were consistent they were yeah and i i think actually let's give nikki a little bit of credit here and the chap who stumbled in off the streets they actually did sound like ice warriors from classic who i thought that was nicely done the monk though seldom is a holy moly more appropriate what style (laughs) what's panache and his tardis an infinite time traveling box full of temptations in a slightly sinister way that the doc's tardis perhaps just isn't you get a sense listening to him and this is the bullet point i referred to earlier that just about anyone including the writer of this will agree that the bad guys are just more fun to write for so much more energy and effort has been lent this character than anyone else including the doctor and my beaker overflows with with gratitude right i am subtracting for a first part without any substance lots of inconsistencies that you've now alerted me to thank you very much and certainly that bloody faux american accent (laughs) but then i'm rating it up for you know what i'm rating it up pretty much just for the monk I'm giving this a 2.4. That's sound. Yeah. Just on the middle. You know, there's one thing I forgot to mention, one tiny point. Oh, what's that? Which was that when Tamsin is saying to the doctor, why didn't you save him? You could have saved him so easily. Why couldn't we just save that one guy? She was parroting almost verbatim Donna Noble in Pompeii, trying to save one little child. Oh, yeah. And possibly also Clara with What's-Her-Face in um, Akaten. Oh, maybe, yeah. I just Sorry, thought I'd you, add to my uh, Tamsin as f- sub-Donna. Oh, I argument. see, yeah. 
you know, we're binging The Office over here. And the American Office. The American Office, and we're coming up to the Donna Noble season. <laughs> I see. Yeah. <laughs> I dread. I dread. Anyway. No one comes out of Series 8 well. No one. <laughs> oh, great. Well, really looking forward to that then. <laughs> we have no listener minis for this double feature. Boo! I mean, alas. Alas, indeed. I, um, unfortunately, uh, well, I mean, we decided at very, very short notice to record this, so uh, sorry about that, Podcast Land. But we think you've been a lovely audience anyway. Yeah. What so are we... we're going to come back and do some more episodes. Absolutely. What are we doing next on the on the audio who front specifically? Because this is where we're going to diverge from the Eighth Doctor Adventure timeline, isn't it? Yes, we're going to incorporate the special an earthly child which will reintroduce certain characters who then appear in relative dimensions which is the next eighth doctor adventure correct amundo thanks chris sorella for notifying us of this yes thank you very much chris and i have listened to that one already and i thoroughly enjoyed it spoilers 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 oh well looking forward to it listening <clears throat> forward to it <laughs> But that's not the next thing that we are going to be reviewing on Who Back When. Next up, we're going to have either a classic or a new, to be confirmed. If it's a classic, it's going to be The Power of Crawl. If it's going to be a new, then it's... In the forest of the night. The night. The night. So get all your minis in Podcast Land as soon as possible. Oh, please do. In the meantime, you can say hello to us online. Please, Drew, enlighten us. You can call my Tweety branding excellent at Drew Backwen. That branding is excellent. Why, thank you. <laughs> you can high-five me online and not mention my lack of branding at Ponkin. <laughs> I'll high-five you right back. It's like the original uh, branding. You were still working out the kinks. <laughs> That's true. That was a, a different podcast ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, thank you so much for listening. Lovely as always. Until the next time, rock on. Stay safe. Stay indoors. Ciao, ciao. Bye-bye. Kablamo! Did you enjoy the show? Then please do what the cosmos compels you to and spread the gospel of who back when. Tell your friends. But I've got no friends. No problemo. Tell some strangers. Hey. Like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash whobackwhen. All in one word. Are you into Twitter? Awesome. High five us online and we'll high five you right back. You guessed it. We're at whobackwhen. All in one word. Check us out on Instagram for behind the scenes photos and other Whovian goodness. Watch our videos or even listen to our podcast on YouTube. That's whobackwhen.com slash YouTube. Vote us up on Reddit. Listen to us on Stitcher and head on over to our website whobackwhen.com where you can submit a review of your own, browse the article archives and peruse our visual index of aliens, monsters and more, which increases in Kablamos with every episode. And lastly, give us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps our show get noticed and earns you lots of karma points. That's it. Rock on and be rad and excellent to each other. Catch your earballs in our next Who review or bonus episode. Until then, ciao ciao. Who back when?